Well, as we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew, been going on for quite some time now. Each week is new and exciting. There's more and more that the Lord reveals to us in His Word. And this morning we are focusing on chapter 22. And by way of introduction, it's important to note that there are many ways in which the Bible speaks about the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sows seed in the field. It is also compared to a mustard seed, to leaven, to treasure. It's compared to a merchant. It's compared to a dragnet, even like a household. Of course, each comparison to a common item is meant to illustrate some specific element of God's kingdom, whether it's its expansiveness or its value, its magnitude or its mysteriousness. But in Matthew 22, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. And why a wedding feast? Well, repeatedly in Scripture, we are told of the coming of a future consummated kingdom that is full of joy and gladness and celebration. It's a celebration of the victory and sovereignty of God over all of his kingdom. And all the guests at that banquet rejoice and praise the Lord. And frankly, this coming celebration, this banquet, it is going to be the greatest celebration of all time. It's a celebration that all people express a desire to attend, and yet not all actually will. Well, why is that? Well, because many in this world who desire the benefits of heaven do not themselves desire to follow the king of heaven. They want God's benefits, but they don't want him. And that's what we're talking about today in Matthew chapter 22. So if you're not already in Matthew 22, go ahead and turn there. And as we've been seeing the events of Matthew 21 all the way through 27, so basically from from this point moving forward to the very end of the gospel, a lot of this, most of this material takes place during Passion Week. This is here in this section, the parables of Matthew 21 and 22 They occur sometime on either Tuesday or Wednesday of that week. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey for Palm Sunday. He has cleansed the temple. He has cursed the fig tree. And now we see him teaching in the temple. It's in the midst of this teaching the crowds. He's interrupted by a group of Pharisees and scribes and priests. And they demand to know by whose authority Jesus is teaching and ministering. And he responds by turning the tables back on them and asking them a question about the ministry and the authority of John the Baptist, and they don't want to answer that question. And we know that the reason they don't want to answer is because they know the answer, and the answer is that John's ministry is from heaven, and what John says about Christ is true, and they don't want to accept that. He responds to their stubbornness by offering a series of three parables of increasing intensity designed to teach them the truth Of Scripture and condemn all opposition. The first parable that we looked at was the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32. It speaks of the nature of obedience. Unlike the first son of the parable, the religious leaders of Israel show themselves to be like the second son who professes to be obedient to the Father and yet disobeys him by their actions. 
The second parable, which is the parable of the vineyard in verses 33 to 44, reveals the wretchedness of the religious leaders who, like the vine growers in the parable, intend to kill the Son of God. And yet they are condemned for this. And by this point, we read in verses 45 and 46 of chapter 21 that the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables and they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. And so now the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel, they're at the mercy of the crowd. They can't walk away ashamed because then they're going to lose face. They can't attack Jesus and seize him and arrest him because of the crowds. So they're forced to just stand there and listen to this final parable of the Lord. And this parable is going to implicate them along with every other disobedient person in Israel. And so we pick up this third parable in the beginning of Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were yet they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized the slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast." Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In verse 1, we read that Jesus is speaking to the Sanhedrin, it says, again, in parables. And what is this parable? What is a parable? Well, a parable is a simple story or an illustration that's designed to communicate a larger or a deeper or a more complex truth. And so... Once again, he tells them a story. Verse 2, the story begins this way. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, unlike the previous two parables, Jesus tells them that the aim of this parable is to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. So the other two, he was just telling stories and leading them into a spiritual understanding. Now he tells them up front, I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven here. And what is the kingdom of heaven like, he says? It is like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, a wedding feast is a momentous occasion. And certainly in this day and age, the time of Jesus is doing this, telling the story, it's the wedding feast is the pinnacle of what was oftentimes a week-long celebration. Our weddings today go, they last an afternoon. Can you imagine having a wedding that went all week long? That was ancient Jewish weddings. They would celebrate for a whole week. 
And there was no greater celebration than a royal wedding. Even now, I mean, we regard royal weddings with high esteem. How many of you got up at 3 o'clock in the morning to watch the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton? Raise of hands. Anybody want to admit to that? No, but I saw a few. But, I mean, why do we do that? Well, because we regard this is an important thing. This is a big deal. The pomp and circumstance and excitement. I mean, we understand that a, a royal wedding is a big deal. A big deal. And this event would have been no less momentous. Verse 3. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And yet they were unwilling to come. They didn't want to come. Now as with any wedding, the guests are always invited. Except in this case, we read that the invited guests, they didn't want to go to this wedding. This royal wedding. Let me ask you. Who who rejects or refuses a royal wedding? wedding invitation. Who would do that? We get up at three o'clock in the morning to watch the wedding. Why why would we, if you got a letter in the mail saying come to the royal wedding, you'd go. And yet they reject. These people reject the wedding. Verse four, again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Here in the second round of invitations, the message is further communicated. He says, listen, the dinner is prepared. Here's the menu. We're going to have an ox. We're going to have fattened livestock. This is the choicest meats. Everything is butchered. Everything's ready. Isaiah 25, 6 would have called this a lavish banquet. A lavish banquet. And all that is required is this. You don't have to to bring a wedding gift. You don't have to bring anything. All you have to do is come to the wedding feast. Surely this is going to get the attention of the people, right? It's already read. I just got to show up and it's done. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. People ignored it. They just went about their business like nothing was going on. But then something worse happens. Verse 6. And the rest, basically of the people, the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Who in the world kills a messenger who invites you to a royal wedding? Well, apparently these wicked people do. Finally, the king has had enough. Verse 7, verse 7. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Unlike the landowner in the previous parable, this king becomes enraged and destroys the murderers and sets their city on fire. Verses 8 and 9. He said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. After dispatching with the murderers, he comments that those people are, are not worthy of coming to the wedding feast. He tells the slaves to go into the streets and find wedding guests there. Go out into the public. Go out into the town square. Go invite people there and see if they'll come. Verse 10. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Now this seems a little bit peculiar, doesn't it? It seems strange. But remember here, the king desires a banquet hall that is full of guests so that he can celebrate. And so they all come. They all show up. The place is filled with dinner guests. And then the king arrives and enters the hall, verses 11 and 12. 
But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And so in a room full of dinner guests, the king, he spots a man who obviously doesn't belong. He's not dressed for the wedding. He's a, he's a wedding crasher. He's there only for the free meal. That's the only reason he's there. And so when he's confronted, he has nothing to say. Why does he have nothing to say? Well, because he knows he's guilty. He knows he's been caught. What excuse could he possibly give? The man is speechless. So what does the king do? Verse 13, the king says to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The uninvited guest is thrown out and punished. And then in verse 14, Jesus offers a, a concluding comment. A, this is the moral of the story. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. So at this point, the parable, the story, it's pretty straightforward, albeit it's a bit unusual. But we know here that there's a grander meaning. We've unpacked kind of the, the nuts and bolts of this parable itself, but there's a greater meaning going on here. Because remember, Jesus is, has told the crowd, he's told the Pharisees and scribes and all the people that there's something going on here. This is about the kingdom of heaven. But what exactly is it about the kingdom of heaven? That is our task to understand. And so let's examine the parable a little more deeply. What does this mean? Well, the king is obviously the father, God, while the son is Jesus Christ. But what then is the wedding feast? What is this? Well, one common metaphor that is repeatedly used to speak about God's relationship to his people has been that of a marriage relationship. We see that the, these themes are borne out in places like the prophecy of Hosea. Even when we read the Song of Solomon, there is something there, the metaphor of, of a husband and a wife enjoying married love, and there is a spiritual application to that, even that song. In fact, Isaiah 62 prophesied the restoration of Israel to God in the last days, which is the culmination of a wedding feast. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. He writes, it will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land it will be any longer said desolate. You shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your, your land will be married. For he continues, for as the young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And so we see here illustrated a spiritual relationship with God that is likened to a marriage relationship. Of course, this metaphor is carried even further forward into the New Testament. Several places, for example, Matthew 9.15, Matthew 25, verse 1, John 3.29 all of those passages refer to Jesus, the Son of God, as the bridegroom. Ephesians 5 carries it even further forward. The husband is likened to Christ, who is the head of the church. And the bride is likened to the church in all her glory. So this husband-wife, uh, Christ and church relationship, we see this played out. And so, to see the kingdom of God being likened to a wedding feast is to understand the spiritual union of Christ and his people. That's what this is ultimately about. Even the nature of, of how the Son is wedded is portrayed in Scripture. 
Like the father is giving a feast for the son, we see the father giving the son a people for his own possession, according to Titus 2.14. So we see throughout this course of Scripture, there's other places as well where God the Father is giving the church, us, to the son, handing us to him in spiritual union. And so we're talking again about the union of believers to the Father through the Son. Like with the previous parables, the slaves, they represent the prophets who are sent with this message. They're sent by God to Israel to deliver this wonderful message. Verse 3, the slaves are prophets. They are those who call all those who've been invited to the feast. And they issue this call to the invited guests. Well, who are the invited guests? Well, we know that initially it's Israel. It's the Jewish people. Verse 3 says that yet they were unwilling to come. They're unwilling. They don't want to follow. This conveys the first response, that they are stubborn and willful in their disobedience. Then we see verse 4. Again, he sent out, other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, some have seen that these two attempts, because there's two efforts here, isn't there? Verse 3 and verse 4. These two attempts in verses 3 and 4 are the two attempts of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets and apostles. That certainly could be. It certainly matches up. Well, how so? Well, because by the time of Jesus' arrival, the general response to the gospel call was twofold. In verse 5, we see indifference. They paid no attention and they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. So by the time of, of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, they don't care, they're indifferent. But some, there's a smaller portion, there's some here that, res, that respond to the gospel call with hostility. Verse 6, the rest seized the slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Certainly we see that in the days of Jesus himself being killed by his own people. But even farther out, there's other places where the, the slaves, the servants of Christ are killed. And this, by and large, is what is the response from unbelieving Israel. They wrote off the gospel as inconsequential, or they disregarded it, or they opposed it so vehemently as to persecute and kill the messengers. But Jesus even predicted this in John chapter 16, verse 2. He tells the disciples, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. By Acts chapter 7, the first New Testament prophet really is killed, Stephen, and more to follow. Well, how does the king respond to all of this? Because remember, he's been sending slaves for a thousand years to Israel to tell them, to warn them, to exhort them, to call them. And at a certain point, as patience runs out, how does the king respond? Verse 7, but the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. The king, he becomes enraged. When you think enraged of the king, you think divine wrath now. That's what we're talking about. And what does he do in his wrath? Well, he's called the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He sends his armies and destroys the murderers. Furthermore, he sets fire to the city. Now, some commentators have tried to allegorize this sort of in a general principle, but we know that in 70 AD, a Roman general named Titus Vespasian, he besieged Jerusalem. And he killed over a million Jews. 
and burnt the city to the ground. He destroyed every single brick. There's only one, even to this day, one outer wall that is still standing. Everything else has been destroyed. Many scholars believe that this verse anticipates the destruction of the city in 70 A.D. Even Jesus, looking out over Jerusalem in chapter 24, verse 2, he tells the disciples, do you see all these things? He's referring to the buildings. Because that's what the disciples say. Oh, Lord, look at all these beautiful buildings. And he says, you see those things? Then he tells them, truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. He tells them it's all coming down. It's all going to be destroyed. God brings earthly judgment to Jerusalem. They still have not recovered, by the way. That has still not been rebuilt. Verse 8. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Now, to be clear, nobody is truly worthy of the kingdom of heaven. But this sentiment is speaking of something else. One commentator writes this, Neither the original invitation nor the subsequent calls were based on merit, but solely on the king's gracious favor. Ironically and tragically, this commentator writes, they were declared to be not worthy because they refused the invitation that was in no way based on worth. So when you're given a gracious invitation and you're already not worthy, so you're not worthy and you've received grace and you reject that grace, you're only further proving your worthlessness. That's what he's talking about. They wouldn't even accept a free invitation to a free party. And so the king says, verse 9, Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the feast. Now, keep in mind the Lord Jesus, he first sends the disciples to who first? He doesn't go to the Gentiles first, right? He tells them in Matthew 10, I want you to only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's it. He shuts the door to all other, all other Gentile evangelism, right? In the very beginning, it's only for Jews, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So no Gentiles, no Samaritans, that's it, just the Jews. But once they reject him, the door is open to the people of every tri- nation, tribe, people, and tongue. It says that all are gathered together, both evil and good. Evil and good. What does that mean? Well, it means both wheat and tares. The gospel call goes out to all people everywhere, and many people respond. Some are genuine believers. Some are false converts. But they grow together. We saw that in the parable of the the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. They all grow together in this field until the harvest. And at the harvest, at the judgment, will they be separated out. And Jesus even tells his workers, don't try to separate it now. You'll ruin the whole field. You understand the practicality of this, right? If we were to go person by person and, and really try to nail you to the wall, and try to root out people from the church now and say, I don't think you're really saved, and try to chop down the chaff, what would happen? We would invariably be rooting out true believers. So Jesus says, don't do that. Now that's not a call to not examine yourself and not give a testimony of your faith, but he says the judgment of the body of Christ is ultimately up to him on the last day. And even it's happening right now today. But then the king comes on judgment day, verses 11 and 12. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, 
he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And so here we see the king, he enters the wedding banquet. And he makes his way around the room and he greets all the guests like a good dad would do, right? And he spots one person, one man who's out of place. Well, how does he know he's out of place? Well, he's not dressed in the proper attire. He's not dressed in wedding clothes. And I want you to notice how this king addresses this man. He calls him friend. That's always, that's, that struck me as being interesting. The man doesn't belong there, but he calls him friend. God even treats the uninvited guests with kindness. That's called common grace. He says, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? Well, what are the wedding clothes? I want to just stop the thought in your mind right away that it's about outward appearance. It's not. It has nothing to do with outward appearance. It is the garments that every believer receives. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. That's what we're talking about. This is what we call the imputed or credited righteousness of Christ. So how this works is when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes on our sins. It's almost as if he he disrobes all of the wretchedness, all the sinful behaviors, thoughts, deeds, actions, all of our life of sin that is wrapped around us and choking us to death. He unburdens all of us of those filthy garments and he places them on himself. And while he's wrapped in our sinfulness, himself not being a sinner, but as he is wrapped in our wretchedness, he goes to the cross and he dies with all of our sinfulness and wretchedness wrapped around him. And when he dies, the penalty for our sins dies with him. But the Father has to do more here. That is not enough to justify the sinner just that a penalty is taken away because, again, we have nothing of inherent value to God. All we've done has been forgiven, but we have no merits now, right? So how is it that we can actually receive, be received into heaven? Here's how it goes. The Father also, also imputes or credits the full righteousness and perfection of Christ to us. We haven't done anything to deserve it. And yet, he takes the full righteousness of Christ and wraps us in that righteousness so that when we stand before him on judgment day, he looks and he sees only the perfect righteousness of Christ that we are clothed with. And it's in that moment that he accepts us into his kingdom. We have nothing of our own. All we have has been received through Christ. And every believer, according to Galatians 327, we are called to put on Christ like a robe. Now, there is a a practical element to clothe yourselves with Christ likeness. Certainly, we are to take on the, the benefits, the righteousness, the deeds of Christ. But in a positional way before God, we have been credited with an alien righteousness, as Luther would say, a righteousness that does not belong to us. But what happens when a person is not clothed in Christ's righteousness? 
when the king confronts the man in the banquet hall asking where are his proper clothes? Where is your robe of righteousness? The man is speechless. Why? Because he's got nothing to say. He knows he's guilty. He has no defense. Romans 3.19 says those who are guilty under the law, their mouth is closed. It's stopped. They can't speak. In fact, that's what happens on the day of judgment. Zephaniah 1.7 commands, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. So this man is silent before God. He's guilty. And what happens to him? Verse 13. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is eternal punishment. This is hell. Jesus warns that this is going to happen even to Israel. Matthew 8, 11, verse 11 to 12. Many shall come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, what he's talking about is unbelieving Jews. The sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's already told them about this. Again, those who do not possess the robe of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, are cast out from the presence of God to be punished forever for their sins. This is a basic truth of the gospel. That without Christ, we perish. People are so indifferent today. I'm just going to live my own way. And, you know, people say things like, only God can judge me. That should terrify you. I don't care about what other people think, frankly. They're not my judge. I am very concerned about what he thinks about me. Because he is righteous and we are not. So beware, dear friend, if that's what you think. If you're thinking, well, don't, I'm not worried about what anybody else thinks. I, you know, I'm good with God. I, I've lived a decent life. I'm okay. Are you ro- robed with the righteousness of Christ? Have you received the gift of eternal life? Have your sins been taken away and nailed to the cross? Has your debt been paid? Have you repented of your sins? Have you put your faith in Christ? Has your connection to God through Christ alone? And if you're like, I I don't know, maybe, who knows? If you don't know, then you're going to be like that dinner guest. He's going to walk into his banquet hall and say, what are you doing here? You don't have the the righteousness of Christ. Where are your wedding clothes? And you're going to have nothing to say. So friends, I'm warning you now while there's time. Make sure that's not you. Make sure that you have received the gift of the righteousness of Christ on your behalf by faith. Jesus then concludes this parable in verse 14. He says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Well, how do we make sense of this? Few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. What does this mean? Well, first we have to examine what this word means, called, called. And there are two distinct calls pertaining to the doctrine of salvation. Two calls, okay? The first call is a universal call for all people everywhere to repent of their sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is called the external call. The outward call, the indiscriminate call. This is portrayed in verses 3 and 4 as well as verses 9 and 10. 
This is when the the servants of the king stand on the street corner and proclaim the gospel to all people, and they cry out, come to the wedding feast of the king. And it goes out to everybody. It doesn't matter, evil or good. It doesn't matter what you've done. The gospel call goes out to all. Remember that, okay? And so when we talk about this distinction between whether or not you're chosen, predestined, elected of God, whether there's an issue of free will, whether I decide, okay, that's a very different issue because the bottom line is that no matter what your theological position is, we are commanded by God to proclaim the gospel to all people. And anybody, doesn't matter their theological heritage, if you do not proclaim the gospel to all people indiscriminately, you're in disobedience. The gospel call goes out to all people everywhere. It is not our job to figure out who the elect are. That is not my business. Frankly, I don't personally care. I treat all people, all of you, everybody, everywhere, like all of you are going to heaven. You just have to believe right now. That is the re- I think that's a proper response to all people. The gospel call goes out indiscriminately. But there is a second call. There's a second call. This second call is the internal call of the gospel. Because many who are called, many who are called, they respond with disobedience or indifference or hostility. You tell a person to repent of their sins and trust in Christ and some of them will kill you. There are those who, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, enter the broad gate that leads to destruction. And he says, many are those who enter by it. There are a lot of people who have heard the gospel probably countless times and yet they reject and they follow the broad course of the world and they are just running headlong into destruction. They have no regard whatsoever for the things of God. They don't care. They don't want it. Yet those who respond to the call of the gospel do so because they hear an internal call. There's something going on inside, a voice that is compelling them to come. And they come to the Lord because they have been chosen by God. Jesus declares this in John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. He doesn't say that some can come to me. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He has to grab you and pull you out of your dead state and tell you to respond. God must awaken the soul. He must call us. He must draw us to him. And when we come to him, we do so by the obedience of faith, Romans 1 says. Romans 8.30 says that whom God has predestined, these he's also called. To whom he's called, these he's also justified. To whom he's justified, these he's also glorified. There is an unbroken chain between who God has called, who he's chosen, who he's justified, who he's glorified. He grabs you from death and brings you to life, beloved. That is not a, a doctrinal truth that's meant to divide people and separate them. That is a doctrinal truth that is meant to encourage and spur you on and edify you. Because here's how this goes. This is, this is why I think the doctrine of election is helpful for the church. This is why I think Paul writes this at the very opening verses of, of Ephesians chapter 1. 
I don't believe the doctrine of election was given to us so we could fight about it. Election was given to us as a doctrine to encourage the saints. Because here's the thing, we get, we get nervous, we get anxious, we worry. Lord, I, I, I want to go to heaven. I, I've prayed to you countless times. I believe the gospel. I look at the cross and I, I see my sin there. I think about the resurrection. I think about church. I think about the Bible. I think about Jesus. I think about all these things and I, I, I want it. I love you, Lord. But then in the back of our minds, we think, but, but what if I'm not going to go to heaven? What if I don't belong to God? What if he hasn't forgiven my sins? And even though we have a love for God, even though we have a strong faith in Christ, even though we believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we still, we still totter and teeter. And we worry, we're anxious. And so the doctrine of election comes in and says, listen, if you love God, it's because he chose you. He plucked you out of darkness and put you into his marvelous light. You're in the palm of his hand. Nobody who loves God is going to hell. This is also why 2 Peter 1.10 exhorts us to be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Not for the purpose of getting anxious and worrying and all that other stuff, but examine the fruit of your life. Be sure of your confession. Ask yourself the question, do I still believe the gospel? Rehearse it and then build up your faith. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I love that. Yes, I hate my sin and I want to confess it. Build yourself up on these truths, beloved. Remind yourself of how good God is. This diligently examining yourself, this is when you hear this call, come to the banquet, come to the banquet, and be sure you're dressed in the right clothes, and that is the righteousness of Christ. Again, how do you know? How do you know? Well, let me ask you, have you confessed your sins to God? It's amazing how many people are sitting in church, they've been in church their whole life, and you ask them, do you confess your sins? Well, I mean, we're all sinners. That's not my question. I know you know, hypothetically, you're a sinner. Have you gotten down on your knees or quieted your own heart, bowed your head, and told God that you've sinned against Him? Lord, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And in doing so, by faith, have you put your trust in Jesus? I ask people, church people all the time, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? Do you believe he died for you? Do you believe he rose again for you? Those who love Jesus, they, they don't skip a beat. Yes, I believe that. I love when I hear that, by the way. No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, can you fake it? Is it technically possible? Yes, it is. But when I look at a believer and I talk to them about their faith and they get welled up and a tear forms in their eye and they say, yes, I believe that Jesus died for me. That means something. Is the righteousness of Christ credited to you? Have you confessed your sins? Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? Is your hope based on your own deeds? Did you sew together your own wedding clothes and show up hoping it's good enough? 
Or is your hope based squarely on the righteousness of Christ? Our own self-righteousness, according to Isaiah 64, 6, is filthy rags to God. It's nothing to Him. And if you arrive in heaven dressed in your own self-righteousness, you will be cast out. But if you're robed in Christ's righteousness, you will be accepted in the Beloved. Your sins will be forgiven. Your future will be secure. Joy and peace everlasting. And so, here's my call to all who hear. Come to the banquet. Come to the banquet. Lay your burdens down at His feet. Unburden your sins before the Father. Ask Him to forgive you. Yeah, but I've done really bad things. Bring it. Confess all of your sins. There is not a sin that is too heinous for the forgiveness of God. What does Ephesians, or excuse me, Romans 5 say? Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more? That doesn't mean that you try to outsin the grace of God, but it means you can't outsin the grace of God. There is enough grace to cover your sins if you would repent and believe in Him. Come to Christ. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. Repent and believe this gospel message. This parable was ringing in the ears of the Pharisees, and they came to realize that this was not them, because they were trusting in their own righteousness, not in the righteousness of Christ. They thought that they were good enough. They thought that they were God's chosen because of who they were. And Mark's gospel says they went away. They, they tucked their tail between their legs, and they just scurried off after this. But this parable of the wedding feast, this banquet, this is more than just a story. Because the Bible tells of a wedding banquet that will take place someday. And if you belong to Christ, guess what? You'll be there. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to close in Revelation 19. The revelation of the Apostle John contains a a plethora of visions and otherworldly scenes. And toward the end of his revelation, the, the tension builds, the story builds, and he's seeing more and more of these visions. The culmination of the, the judgment of God, the return of Christ, the judgment of the nations, the kingdom of God, the, the new heavens, the new earth, all of this kind of comes to a fever pitch here. But at the very end, it's very interesting. It's interesting to me that when you look at the context we see in the midst of all of this action a wedding banquet that surpasses all wedding banquets. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. This is John speaking of what he sees and hears. He says in verse 6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, 
These are the true words of God. Now, we've been saying that we enter heaven clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But God does not neglect what we do here on earth. Because all who are robed with the righteousness of Christ, guess what? We begin to do the things that Christ does. And we do perform good deeds and good works, not for ourselves to add to or build our righteousness. We do so in response to the abundant grace of God. We become zealous for good deeds, don't we? We read about this last week in our scripture reading, Titus chapter 2. Those who have received the grace of God are also gracious to other people. And so one day we will show up in heaven wrapped in the righteousness of Christ and when we're dining in the banquet, we are then robed with fine linen. We are robed with all kinds of righteousness that is pleasing to God. But let me ask you the question again. Will you be at this wedding banquet? Will you be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb? How do you know? Because we want to be there, don't we? Can you imagine? I just ponder this for a second. Entertain this curiosity with me of being there in the halls of heaven as long and as far as the eye can see. And every single believer who's ever lived, from Adam to the very end, every single believer in one place, together in spotless righteousness of Christ, without sin, without shame, celebrating and rejoicing and eating and drinking with each other, but also at the head of the table, there is Christ leading us in this celebration. And we are not caring as much about what we say to each other, even though we're joyful. Our eyes are transfixed on Him. Our mouths are rejoicing. Our bellies are full. And we are celebrating in this wonderful marriage feast. Can you imagine? I can't wait to be there with you all. And even when we do funerals here, it's always sweet when you send off a believer who you know loves Christ. You send them off because you know they're getting there before you are. And they're waiting for you. And we know that we will see them, but we will see them because we will see Christ. Beloved, if you can see it, make sure you're there. Is your faith in Christ alone? If it's not, you will not be there. You'll be cast out. And my heart breaks for those who will be cast out. But be all the more diligent to be sure of your calling and choosing. Trust in Him. Turn over all of your sins. Confess them. Trust in the finished work of Christ. And you will have life eternal. Heavenly Father, we come to you because you are the good king. You are the righteous king. And Lord, even though our hearts are heavy because of the burden of sin, at the same time in Christ, our hearts are lifted because we know that we belong to you. There is that inward call of the gospel, that voice that whispers to us, yes, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We hear you. Lord Jesus, you tell us that 
all who belong to you, they hear your voice and they respond in faith and you tell us that you know me and you will not cast us out. We are in the palm of your hand and you cling to us. You hold us securely. Lord, that call that we hear is a marvelous call. And Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that this gospel call will go out farther and farther and farther to the ends of the earth. And Lord, that many who need you the most will respond to this call. And Lord, I pray, even if there are any here today who have never responded to this call, that they would see their need for salvation, that they would lay aside their own self-righteousness, see their destitute nature, And call out to you for mercy and forgiveness. And put their faith in Jesus today. Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. That we would see them in the banquet halls of heaven rejoicing in our Savior. Oh Lord, what a wonderful day that will be. Lord, it is hard right now to live here. But we know that our hope is not here. Our hope is in you for the future, for eternity. Lord, would you bless and keep us near to you, all those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. We bless your name. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.